You are listening to a Nerd Room podcast production. We the Nerd. Bunch of nerds. Hey everyone and welcome to Nerd Room. We talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, DC, and beyond. This episode number 308, we're discussing the box office versus the Oscars, Madam Web, and the essence of adaptation. I'm one of your hosts, Tim. And I'm Carlos. And guys, you know it's a slow week when Madam Web makes our headline, our title of the episode. <laughs> this dry spell, man, is really, really extending its way well into 2022. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, with the Super Bowl happening this weekend, that we finally have a Jurassic World Dominion or some other trailer to talk about because we're having to really dig deep into the news and more of our abstract talks, especially over the last three weeks of what is the end of January, early February here. And you know what that means? That means, Sony, you played yourself by yes. pushing Morbius. <laughs> yes, you should. should have released it and you would have had all the eyeballs for want of anything else. Exactly, man. This is probably the the longest dry spell that we've seen. And yes, we've got the Peacemaker and these incredible episodes of the Book of Boba Fett happening. But we are going to press pause on those because we have not only, I think, it, one more episode of Book of Boba Fett and maybe two or one more of Peacemaker. Two Peacemakers. Two Peacemakers. And so we're, we're kind of coming to the end of those. And we want to save some of our thoughts until we wrap those up, of course, with the Vigilante Boys. We're going to do that in... Two Fridays from now. So the 18th, we're going to be doing a live stream there to wrap up the book of Boba Fett and likely Peacemaker in that as well, given the timing of everything. But we've got an interesting episode for you here, guys. If you are part of you know the film universe, you're, you're knowing that the Oscars have just dropped their nominations. And something that's been percolating through my head as all these nominations are rolling out, and I'm asking myself, what are these movies I did a little reflection back on the box office, and we thought it'd be interesting to uh, plug into a discussion here. We're also going to talk about, yes, Madam Web. Madam Web, the one of the biggest characters in the Sony universe, is coming to the big screen at some point, and there has been a casting. And so, of course, we have to cover this. But we're actually going to use this as a launching pad for a discussion about adaptation and what an adaptation truly is in the space that we live in and explore some of those details a little bit. So buckle up, guys. We've got to get into our weekly news segment with This Week in Nerd. All right, everyone. Welcome to This Week in Nerd, our weekly news segment where we break down the latest and the greatest from the world of nerd. And like I said at the top, it's been a quiet week, Carlos. Very, very quiet week on top of several other quiet weeks in the background where we have all of this great content coming at us. But first things first, before we get into the news that is Madam Web, let's talk about the box office and the Oscar nominations. Now, the box office is something that we used to, in the nerd room, spend a lot of time talking about. We still have to put together our box office fantasy draft for this year. But we've put that on pause because there's no movies that are coming out <laughs> until... Really, the Batman, I think, is the biggest first movie out of the gates. And so we've given ourselves a little breathing room to consume, to think, and really pull that all together. But I want to look back at 2021, the box office in 2021. It was the first time in a couple of years where we did see 
a reasonable turnout for some movies, including Spider-Man No Way Home. We got back to the somewhat pre-pandemic numbers with some of those movies, and it'll be interesting to see how that translates into 2022. When I look at the top 10 movies from 2021, which includes Spider-Man No Way Home, of course, those movies pulled in $2.1 billion. The following 90 also took in $2 billion. So the top 10 films took in about half of the yearly box office domestically. And when I compare that to the Oscar nominations that just dropped, six nominations are taken up by a few films in that top 10. Not all top 10 films being represented. Of the 120 nominations that went out yesterday for the Oscars. Three of those went to No Time to Die, one to Shang-Chi, one to Free Guy, and one to Spider-Man No Way Home. And so the question I wanted to throw to you, Carlos, is this idea of box office GA, where the eyeballs are versus the Oscar nominations. Is there relevancy to the Oscar nominations anymore with the movies that it does celebrate? I'm not saying they're bad movies. I'm saying they're movies that not a lot of people are seeing. So is it a connection to the fact that we're not seeing the biggest films being represented? Or is there something different underlying that I'm missing? Well, before we start, I'm going to probably preface this by saying, like, I'll sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because (laughs) I don't hold a lot of stock in the vast majority of the Oscar nominations with the amount of nepotism and campaigning that goes on behind the scenes. And, uh, yeah, I stopped having faith in the Oscars when uh, Shakespeare in Love got the nod for Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan, and my eyes were opened, and uh, (laughs) I figured, uh, you know what, there's a a lack of credibility with these year awards. Uh, But as it relates to this topic that you've tabled here with the movies that people are rushing out to see and the movies that are getting uh, a lot of box office versus the movies that the Oscars are celebrating. For me, you kind of get your reward with the money that you've made and you've made something that's um, oftentimes manufactured and Mm -hmm. pretty targeted to a specific audience and eliciting a response from that audience and you get a financial windfall from it. And I'm not sitting here as like the, the film Twitter hipster because I don't really watch a lot of the movies on the, the Oscar radar. Like I'm kind of more of the, the candy floss and good times type of film guy, at least for the most part. But the Oscars are there to celebrate an achievement and accomplishment in art, whether or not they do that truly altruistically and with integrity. I do call into question however that is what they're there for and so sure a movie like free guy made lots of money but what in that movie are you telling me is an an achievement in acting an achievement in storytelling an achievement in in scripting versus something like power of the dog that made no money technically because it was released on Netflix. However, it's leading the pack with Oscar nominations, right? So um, yeah, like for me, the Oscars aren't really about the franchise type movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like even with the the movies that, that were nominated in some of those categories that the franchises get recognition for, like 
Spider-Man No Way Home and uh, Shang-Chi are not even the two Marvel movies with the best special effects. You don't have to go very far to know my thoughts on The Eternals. However, visually, that movie is vastly superior to both those movies, and it didn't get a nod in the special effects category. But the reason that Spider-Man is in there and Shang-Chi is to get two Marvel movies that you can use to advertise, that you can woo in people who are actually going to the theaters to watch movies and who are the biggest audience out there to tune into your broadcast. And yeah, well, maybe I'll see Tom Holland and maybe he'll drop a nugget about what's happening with the next Spider-Man movie or whatever, right? So it's a bit of a game that they play and stuff. And at the end of the day, it's just a big Hollywood slap on the back type yeah. of deal. And it is what it is. Like... You know, I, I don't know. I don't know that it's built for us commoners, and so I uh, I don't really give them too much thought or attention, and I think the whole thing's a sham. But if they are going to have their little their little dinner party that they like to have, then, uh, you know, it is about celebrating the art of movies. So that's why I don't really feel that they need to look at the movies that made the most money, and then those are the ones that you mm. bring to the table. It's That's why some weird movie that you have an impossible time sitting through like Nomadland wins best picture because <laughs> that's what those guys are all about <laughs> and it's it's an interesting discussion because if I'm being honest with you I, I still look at it and the way that they pitch themselves is hey we're here to to be the big flashy thing yeah um, oh 100% and it's to me that that is a bit different from what they are actually celebrating Totally. And, and that is just a lack of truth in advertising, right? Like mm -hmm. if if they position themselves to to actually showcase what they're all about and to let audiences know that these are the things that we're looking for and these are the things that we celebrate and these are the tangible metrics that we mm -hmm. look for, people probably know that, yeah, this guy from Fast and the Furious, which I really enjoyed, is not going to be walking the stage to pick up his Oscar because that's not the kind of things that the Oscars are looking for. Mm -hmm. But because they try and cash in on that audience that is going to see all the big Hollywood blockbusters, they kind of make themselves seem as though those are the types of movies that you're going to get to come and you know cheer on when their event is happening. But yet, uh, surprise... Yeah, well, it's like all the <laughs> times they, up. they'll they'll advertise. We're reassembling the Avengers to come and give a, a an Oscar to whomever, right? And to me, it's just it, it almost comes down to that that false advertising that the portrayal that they're broadly representative of everything in Hollywood, including your big smash Black Widow blockbusters and all this, but it's not really that. And so I, I think there's always room for, for celebrating achievement and all that in, in a certain way, but it's, it's just more and more, it just doesn't sit with re, right with me how, how ultimately it's portrayed and it's overall relevancy. Right. And, you know, is an Oscar nom a selling feature anymore for an actor or for a director? I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it is for an actor because it, it's a recognition by your peers and by, the people who are held up to be the experts in the field of film and in assessing acting and and whatnot, but at the same time, like I don't know. Yeah, I I see. I opinions see. Opinions are like buttholes, right? Everybody yeah. has one. So 
<laughs> I see the director is holding more esteem with an, with an Oscar as opposed to an actor um, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And, you know, a director gets this for achievement and, you know, they're, they're often held to a bit higher regard, I think, almost. And the actor, I see less of it. But they're always used to sell movies, that's for sure. That nomination. Yeah. Nomination or or award, right? And so, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I, I did think it was interesting that, you know, effectively Hollywood is supported by these big budget, yes, franchisee at times, like you said, manufactured films. But the the recognition comes, I guess, at the People's Choice Awards or the Kids' Choice Awards and all of this. Yeah, for that. And, like, if you're looking for an award show to kind of gauge – quality in a movie like i'd maybe look to something like the screen actors guild Mm -hmm. awards and the critics choice awards is the one that i give a bit more credibility to but uh ah, even then man letterbox it exists find a few people whose tastes are similar to yours and see what they thought of movies and off you go except for mine yeah Space (laughs) space jam is the last movie that i bothered to stick on mine Ultimately, go watch Ghostbusters Afterlife, Spider-Man No Way Home, and if you're going to pick two movies out of the top ten, those are probably the two I tell you to go watch. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, man, let's move on to this Madam Web casting for the Sony MCU or whatever we're calling it here. The Madam Web, not not a character you would think would garner this amount of attention for a casting, and almost not a character you would expect to be supporting an entire film if that's the direction they're going with this but it's definitely part of building out their spider-man rogues gallery universe in tandem with whatever they're building with holland and company and venom but i guess an actress a younger actress uh, dakota johnson has been cast in the role and this actress doesn't exactly look too much like the character that's in the comics, a, I don't know, how old did you say Madam Web is in the comics? <laughs> She's hundreds of years old as yeah. far as I understand. And she looks yeah. hundreds of years old. And so there's a, a little discrepancy there in the casting as to what they're going to do with it. It's just some suggestions that they're Madam Web 2, or is there Madam Web 2, a second Madam Web? Um, yeah, just kind of recently, like Julia Carpenter yes. took on that role. So the one-time Spider-Woman um yeah she was kind of their their guide the guide to the various web slingers from mm-hmm. across the spider-verse so some suggestion that she could be that and you could be in a very ant-man situation where you have your scott lang is the the main title character supported by hank pym maybe this is the same scenario as that i don't know i really don't know much about this character but i can tell you one thing the the casting didn't overly bother me but there's some some conjecture online about this particular casting and them deviating away from the source material so heavily thoughts on this one. You've read this character a little bit, Madam Webb supporting a film and the casting here, Dakota Johnson. Yeah. I think the only thing I can really opine on is Dakota Johnson. And I think she's a fine actress. She's talented. And uh, I think she could pull off what they're asking her to pull off. The place, the stumbling block for me is why are you making a Madam yes. Web movie? Like <laughs> that's that's a part that's mystifying. The only theory that I have, and it's based on nothing, but I just kind of had the thought, so I'll share it here, is I wonder if she has a big role in Edge of the Spider-Verse. 
Mm-hmm. And if they're thinking that she's going to be huge coming off of the tales of that movie and that she'll have a whole bunch of popularity and be able to support a movie or if they use her and it just seems weird that they want to do a full movie with this character if they're just using her to be that cog that all their multiverse spins around so that they can have their characters in and out of the MCU or wherever else they need them but uh, yeah I'll, I'll be curious to see what they do with it I, I'm pretty confident she'll play out a bit closer to the Julia Carpenter version of yeah. Madam Web, but I don't know. Like Spider-Verse for me, it, it always works best as a pretty finite concept. And um, yeah, I, I don't know where they're going or what they're planning to do with it, but, uh, but we'll see. Uh, you know, Sony offered up two comic book movies last year and one was one of the f- best comic book movies I've ever seen. And one was one of the worst comic book movies I've ever seen. So There's we'll see what happens. <laughs> so yeah, here we're, if it falls in the middle, probably pretty good. At the end of the day, when I look at these, and these castings are always something that um, you can look at and be, you can say, ah, that's that's not my Madam Web. I don't know who's really saying that. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to how the character is portrayed and what story the character is used in and, you know, what essence the character takes. And that really kind of kind of brings us to one of the things that we're going to spend a bit of time on here, Carlos. And this isn't really a news-focused topic, but it's a topic that we've batted around a lot and we've talked to in different aspects of reading through some of these casting rumors and hearing about particular story adaptations and changing characters from one actor to another or one director to another and how they've adapted a particular story or character and so we're gonna we're gonna really talk a little bit more abstractly about the idea of adaptations particularly in the space that we we reside in here in the comic book movie world extending out to some of that beyond aspects of it and you know we've seen a lot of characters translated from from the comic book and some from novels onto the big screen or onto the small screen in the subscription service Disney Plus HBO Max. And a lot of these characters carry very deeply rooted origins in those comic books and in some cases in films like Star Wars. And, you know, when we get these early insights to these projects, some of us have hesitations as to how they're going to do this, how they're going to bring this origin, how they're going to tie this in and carry through a character without deviating from the source material and the idea or concept of deviating from the source material at times has been associated with something that is bad that is not good something that we don't want and i say we as in the capital the big we and so the first thing i wanted to look at here carlos is what is an adaptation the act of adapting something fundamentally is the process of taking something and changing it to suit a different situation, a different medium, if if you will. And so adaptation, I think, in itself is asking for change because the way you look at a character or portray a character in a comic book doesn't necessarily always translate wholeheartedly onto the big screen when it comes to your stories, your economics of the narrative, and even of the broad appeal of a certain character. So for you, Carlos, adaptation, what is a good adaptation? Does, does that exist? 
is there a concept of a right way to adapt a character or is there something more fundamental that needs to be carried in to set up to adaptations yeah i i think for me like you're always gonna have adaptations because you're taking something that's beloved in one format be it a novel or a comic book or a video game or even a toy line and translating it into a different medium so that you can reach a wider audience that you can cater to the audience that already loves it and obviously there's a profit motive with 99.98 percent of this stuff um but if you do it well logic will say that people will embrace it and you will end up achieving that goal of profiting from it. And sometimes it's just a matter of bringing these things to a new audience and Mm -hmm. to a wider audience and giving them a whole new life, right? Like there's, there's things that wouldn't even exist if we didn't adapt them and bring them to a modern audience in a different way. So yeah, I I do think that there's value in that. I, I really have a hard time with the folks that believe that something should exist in the format that it was initially put into the world as mm-hmm. and never be touched and never be translated into any other form like no like you you miss reaching a whole bunch of people and generating a new fan base and having generations carry it on like hell even the bible was turned into a movie so it, it's gonna happen whether you like it or not so for me all you can hope for is that they do two things that number one, that they do it in the best possible way that they can, given the medium that they're translating it to. And number two, that they nail the fundamental core of the characters that they're adapting. Like that is, uh, it's a non-starter for me. If you're not going to do that, or if you think that you can reinvent something that's been around for 80 years or put your new spin on it or bring it down to your level. No, just no. Like, you need to respect what has kept something beloved and enduring for uh, as long as it has been and what makes it appealing and then kind of build it out from there. And then, you know, once once you've established it and showed everybody, this is why Superman is a thing. This is why people have loved Iron Man since the 60s. This is why those Michael Crichton Jurassic Park novels have sold as many as they did. Once you've established that, then yeah, sure, you can kind of build it out and see the pieces and parts that your wider audience have latched onto and the pieces and parts that they didn't really care for and then grow it from there. But um, I think as long as you hit that fundamental core, you're kind of in a pretty good space for growing it. Mm-hmm. But if you miss that, then you just end up with Steel and Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that very much is where I see it too. It's the essence of the character. The essence of the story has to be translated and not so much the verbatim or panel by panel imagery that you do see. I like your point about when these characters entered the world could, you know, a lot of these characters into the world in the forties, fifties, sixties, which were very, very different times than we're in right now. And so there needs to be some sort of modernization or adaptation into some of the new world thought. And we saw that last year with the changing of Superman's motto to update that, to adapt that, to reflect more of the essence of the character. 
Now that's not a direct translation onto the big screen, but you might be seeing a bit of that in Superman and Lois. But ultimately there, there comes a time where an adaptation is taking something that was fundamentally different when it was introduced, capturing the essence of why it's important and bringing that and modernizing it onto the big screen to reach your GA. Because that's another good point that you brought up, right? Is some books don't translate super well to a GA. You want to open it up a little bit more, introduce people to the character, which then in turn causes people to go back and do research, to understand and to care about these characters in a different way. And I also think that's that's so important that there's a two-way street to this, is mm -hmm. that you can change a character to update it, but then there's always that existing in the background. The, 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 the roots of the character still exist back where they were were born into the universe. Well, a lot of times is these characters, they do run the risk of just dying off and becoming completely irrelevant, mm -hmm. right? Like DC Comics was going to cancel Batman and Detective Comics, but there was this TV show that they had sold the rights to and that comes out and now you have arguably one of the two biggest characters of in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the precipice of having what's going to be a billion dollar plus movie and that's just because they adapted what was in the books and made it its own thing right yeah like they approach that tv show and they're like we need to play this because we as the showrunners see this as something that's kind of silly but we need to play it so that the kids take it deadly serious uh as we did when we were kids reading this but the adults know that it's being played for laughs and it's totally over the top camp and uh, off we go. And they, they struck gold with having that approach. Right. And so that garnered a generation of fans and then it gets adapted again and they completely change the paradigm for the character in 1989. Right. And like the same thing with Spider-Man, like people get so precious about Spider-Man and his origins and, and whatnot. I'll tell you right now, the vast majority of people, that are massive Spider-Man fans are not as a result of the comic books, but it's because of either the animated series in the 60s that was shown on repeat into perpetuity. In fact, you could probably turn on the TV and find it right now. The animated series from the 90s or the video games. Mm -hmm. Those are the big things that created the most ravenous, vitriolic Spider-Man fans on the internet right now is those things. Like... You can talk to me all you want about having read like the Ditko and Stan Lee stuff. It's man, you read that in reprint <laughs> decade after you were a big fan running around in your underoos. <laughs> <laughs> and again, those are versions of characters. I think that's the thing that we have to remember when we're talking about adaptations is that it doesn't even necessarily mean that the character is being translated from one medium to another. A version exists in every comic book that we've ever read. As soon as a new writer takes over, technically the, the character's evolving on the fly, right? Oh, there's yeah. A, there's a different version of that character from one writer to another. Man, I literally read the newest issue of Batman today, and the Batman in the lead story is a different Batman than it is in the backup story in the second half <laughs> of the book. Like, their, their costumes are even different, and where they're at in the world is different. So yeah, you're bang on the money. It's just, you know, you, you have this true essence of the character and then it's up to the writers and artists to 
take stewardship of it for an issue or an arc or for a series or a TV show or a film and off you go, right? And you take in that vision and either you love it or it's terrible and you move on. Well, and that's the thing. I think people forget a lot of the times when we're looking at the big screens becomes because they become very visible versions of a character. And on the small screen, wherever, that you get a lot of eyeballs on. And you kind of forget that, that this stepwise evolution has happened over a series of decades, in some cases, of these characters. And all you're witnessing on screen is the latest adaptation of that character. And that character can change and likely will change. Raimi's Spider-Man is very different than what we saw with Holland and company. Right, mm-hmm. very different Spider-Man, very different fan bases, but ultimately two different versions that are put out there and adapted at different times for different reasons. You know, Holland's fits the MCU much better than Maguire's does. He's a bit more standalone, and so there's a purpose there. And like you're talking about the the creatives and and the the people that are actually producing these adaptations and. They are the ones that are ultimately responsible for for directing some of these, whether it's a director, a writer, a comic book writer, a, a showrunner, whatever. How much liberty do you think these guys should have or or leverage in their storytelling? Because when I look at this, it's it's how much can you push a character like Luke Skywalker? You know, th- yeah. there's 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 an interesting case study that we can look at. Is you have the OT version, you have that character is then adapted into something that is different 30 years later. And now we're revisiting the character about three to six years after his final appearance in return of the Jedi. So we've got three different versions of this same character with very different creatives with their hands around them. And the response has been vastly different in all of these adaptations but ultimately it comes down to the creative and the story that they want to tell. So what liberties do do creatives need to be successful and what liberties should they really have? Well, I, I think it's hilarious that you throw me that question, but you played with Luke Skywalker in that 30 year later adaptation and you went full. He who shall not be named with, uh, <laughs> with that uh, tee up. <laughs> but for me, I'll actually take it back into, into my own house. And I think, uh, the thing that you never want to see is you never want to see Green Lantern. You never want to see an adaptation that's, like you said, on this big showcase now where you're having millions of people watching it and there's been a ton of investment into into a project and then it totally face plants and then you damage the character and you can't, you have a hard time getting him back to a position mm-hmm. where you can showcase them for an audience again. So I think that's what you'd really want to avoid. But as far as how much liberty that a that a steward or a showrunner or a comic book writer can have, I I think that you you can't give them carte blanche with these characters, mm-hmm. but you you do need to give them a bit of room and I th- I think you kind of have to have your kind of bible approach, right? And I think that's something that Marvel uses and I think DC used it a bit and it didn't work really well because the train had kind of already left the station, but you kind of need somebody, you need to let your creative do your thing. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be a collaborative effort where they hammer out their story. 
their version of the characters, where they want to take things, and then they present it to the people that are paying paying the checks so that you can bring this thing to screen. And there needs to be an opportunity where there's people who have been trusted with the mythology to be able to take a look at it and say, like, this is good stuff. This is not something the character mm-hmm. would do. Batman wouldn't go on a machine gun fueled rampage in the Batmobile through Gotham City eviscerating all sorts of people. Maybe the better play is for him to track this thing to a location and just go full stealthy, um, silent, silent vigilante through this place and steal the object that he needs to steal kind of thing, right? So you need to have those conversations Mm -hmm. so that you still get what your creative wants to do, like where they want to take the character where, you know, I need my guy to go from point A to point B and this is his goal. But you need to make sure that you don't violate those aspects of the character that made them beloved in the first place in getting there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like with, with Luke, like I, I get, and I really respect what, Ryan Johnson was going for in The Last Jedi. But at the same time, there's a price to be paid for that because there is a very beloved version of the character. And yeah, there's all those things from the quote-unquote what became Star Wars Legends that uh, we were told is not canon anymore. But you have to kind of respect the fact that that really informed a generation, if not two generations, Mm -hmm. of people how they picture this character and what he stands for and what he represents and the ideals that they might have weaned from that character. And then there's a decision to be made and somebody maybe needed to say like, yeah, this guy that saw the faintest glimmer of hope and refused to kill his dad at the climax of Return of the Jedi being willing to lay down his own life because he believed so strongly in the innate goodness of his father isn't going to be like, yo, my nephew might be bad sometimes, so I'm going to chop him in half yeah. <laughs> while he's sleeping. So, like, you got to respect the version of the character that people have grown up with, and you can push them, but I think you need to push them within boundaries. Yeah. And I think that's where you need your stewards for for the mythology, right? Like, mm-hmm. a guy like a Kevin Feige, who, by all accounts, is pretty, pretty rigid with making sure that they don't violate those things that would alienate the audience from their characters. And it's been done to multi-billion dollar success. So I think there's something to it. There is definitely something to it. And the, the reason I bring up in Luke particularly is because there is such a stark contrast in the adaptation of that character into the last Jedi. Mm -hmm. And I don't love that movie. But when I look at Luke and I look at the reception that he got um, from even people like Troy and that that hold this character near and dear, it's almost the the way that he was changed, the way that he was adapted into something different. It was just so abrupt, right? Yep. There was we didn't we didn't spend any time understanding how this character, and I think what Johnson was trying to capture there was that this character's fallen so far 
that he is like this. And it's such a contrast to what we've seen, but we don't see any of that in between. We don't see any of that evolution. And so it becomes very difficult. And I think a creative, and this is maybe more effective in a comic book, can have a lot of liberty with a character over time, where you can change over time. You can evolve in an organic way from a character becoming one thing to another. You could you could argue in some fashions that Boba Fett even is very different than our headcanon mm-hmm. had imagined, right? And how... Filoni and Favreau and Rodriguez have taken this character in the book of Boba Fett, right? He's he's a different character than we had imagined, right? Does he still hold the same essence and core values, if he did have any, of the character that was created in Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back? I think with Boba, though, there's, there's a bit of a caveat because he's just bonus, right? True. Because he, as far as we all knew, he was dead. Yeah. He was dead. <laughs> digested in the pit of carcoon so yeah i I don't know boba boba's an interesting one but yeah people haven't loved how they've went about changing his character for the front half of book of boba fett but um yeah like the the luke one i i definitely get Mm -hmm. more so than boba because like i said boba's just bonus yeah well then you look at what they're doing with luke in in the book of boba fett right and the character that we're seeing on screen is very much the character that Favreau and Filoni <laughs> thought yeah. that Luke would turn out to be post Return of the Jedi. He is that soft, caring Jedi master, right? It, the the difference between the characters, and yes, there's still 25 years or whatever difference there for the fall of Luke Skywalker, but the difference is very much on display from what we're seeing in the last couple episodes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like f- for me, like being on the periphery of it all. Um, yeah, you just, you kind of love this Luke Skywalker because you get to kind of bask in the, the victory of the rebels a little yeah. bit with how they're portraying Luke here, right? Like to go from Return of the Jedi to um, The Force Awakens, it's kind of like, shoot, you feel like it was all for nothing. Mm-hmm. You might as well have just left the Empire in place because yeah. it's, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's all for naught, right? Whereas with this, you you kind of get to feel that excitement that Luke Skywalker has for the prospect of building out his new Jedi Academy and working to create this brave new Republic, uh, so to speak. And yeah, I, I dig it, man. Like I, I, I really like that Luke Skywalker that we got and I hope we get a pile more of them. However, they want to bring him to screen. Like it's just, yeah, you know what? It's just fun. Like, why not? Why not? Exactly. We never got to experience this, Luke. You it, got in a few now non-canonical Dark Horse comics, and that was about it. Yeah. Well, and, and you talked, too, about taking from, like, the literature side of the legend stuff. And that's something that Favreau and Filoni have been very particular about in this series, is plucking little things, right? You saw Filoni doing that with characters even like Thrawn, where they've taken a beloved Legends character, transformed him into something in rebels and now we're likely to see him in live action in a very different form very different story that played out in rebels compared to what we saw in the thrawn trilogy by timothy zahn those books that were done in the 90s mm-hmm. but he's garnered a new a new fan base because they've translated him into the new canon of star wars and you know the thing is those books will always exist the thrawn trilogy will always be there 
but it looks like they took that character and did something different to to make him important in new canon and to really translate him into the, that rebels universe and make him a big pillar of what was the novels the rebels and likely the live action kind of quote-unquote thanos of the post return of the jedi era yeah did they ever explain why they took such a hard stance against anything outside of the movies being non-canon and considered Star Wars Legends? Like, I certainly remember Disney making that announcement. Yeah, I think it was just to free up storytelling, to be honest with you, to free up creatives to maybe pluck from that, but also not be so beholden to what was established over that period of... I, I, how, how many books rick tell us how many books are in that legends like there's a very very definitive luke skywalker like you brought up and han solo chewy the way that chewy's exited from the universe thrawn the empire mara jade the children you know what i mean like it's there's all this stuff that's established and i just feel that they did not want to to step all over that mm-hmm. and also have to adapt that directly if you will that Luke has to be married with the twin. You know what I mean? So they, they took pieces of that and pushed that into the sequel, but not a lot of it. Okay. And gotcha. I, that would be my guess. I don't know why. Um, because you're looking at thousands of, of comics and books and all this stuff, right? And I think they wanted to build up their own new story. Well, and it definitely makes sense to bring that to a wider audience. Because, mm-hmm. like a blind man can see that these are massive properties consumed by millions and millions of people. But there is like a minuscule amount that actually reads the comic books, Mm -hmm. that reads the books that um, can go out and absorb all that stuff. So yeah, that probably factors in too. Well, and I think that we're going to see even that volume that has been created in star Wars. And as they're evolving and adapting these new stories in the post version of the Jedi era, and even into things like Kenobi and that, I think we're going to see them stepping a little bit on those comics and on the rebel stuff, even particularly with Obi-Wan and Darth Maul, because there's mm-hmm. a story to be told there to a much wider audience than consume those, those rebels shows the, at the end of it there, right? Where we do see that final battle between Maul and Kenobi. And I think there's a, an opportunity there to put it through a different lens and show it to a bigger audience in this Kenobi show. I, I'm convinced that, that Maul is translated onto the big screen again. Maybe not Ray Park's Maul, but a Maul indeed. <laughs> yeah, that guy had bad timing with uh, sharing things through the internet. But uh, yeah, I I would love to see Darth Maul again. Like mm-hmm. I think he's just an interesting character, and you know they, they brought him back in an interesting way in the animated stuff, so there's no reason they couldn't showcase that, mm-hmm. even in a montage and uh, get Maul back as a villain and, yeah. you know. Talk about a character evolution, right? You put him in the hands of different creators and all of a sudden he's back in Clone Wars, in Rebels, in the comic books, in novels, and, of course, in live action when they brought him back in Solo. Mm-hmm. And so he's a character that, that, that spans all mediums, but in the hands of different creatives, he's doing different things, and I think he's really evolved because of that. He was kind of one-note-ish in in episode one i really liked him and i thought that they should have had him carry right through the trilogy but he didn't talk he didn't do much he looked cool and he he found his end right and it was cool to see them pull him 
from that end and do something different with him. Yeah, and he's an interesting character too because um, there was a fan video that I shared with Troy, and um, it was just like a little CGI video that this guy had made. But um, we talked about the prospect; like it was just so cool. We talked about the prospect of that becoming a video game, and then the thought was like, you use a character like Darth Maul as your video game quote unquote protagonist because he kind of comes into conflict with everybody yeah. comes into conflict with the light side, the dark side and the people in between. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. Got lots of cannon fodder for that guy to chop through. <laughs> It'd be awesome in a video game too. Yeah. So we, we talk about a lot of characters, you know, we mentioned Luke here and, you know, looking at characters like Obi-Wan or Spider-Man, Superman, whomever. And, especially with characters that have seen a lot of big screen adaptations, your Batman, your Spider-Man in particular, there's always lots of talk of a definitive version of an adaptation, a definitive version of Batman, a definitive version of Spider-Man. And I want to ask you this one question. Does a definitive version of a character exist or should it exist? I think you'll always have your idealized version of the character. Like, I think, like, we've had how many Batman movies? Like, nine? Yeah. And I've never seen the definitive version of Batman on live action. But I think I've seen a pretty definitive version of him on Batman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think there is, I don't know that there's a quote-unquote definitive version, but there's always an idealized version. Because mm-hmm. even that version has things that are incongruent with the greater lore or even things like the Spider-Man animated series, which is beloved, there's parts of that that, you know, Gwen Stacy is missing from the entirety of that series, if memory serves correctly. Um, So that's a version of the character that is almost perfect, but can you call it definitive when it's missing huge parts of that character's history? Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know that you could ever call a version definitive, to be honest with you. And the bigger, wider a character is, the harder you would be to pin down. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with you. The idea or concept of definitive for me is is somewhat elusive, especially when you look at, at characters, like you said, that have so many different adaptations, Batman being the example. You've got Adam West, Keaton, Kilmer, Clooney, Bale, Affleck, Pattinson coming up here. And are are we still searching for that definitive version? And if we are doing that, do they actually does that actually exist, or are these all just versions of a character that a creative has put a spin on? They're telling a different story of the same character. That's the way I like to look at it, right? It's it's all an evolution process of this. Is you got Adam West, and like you alluded to, it was evolved into Keaton, which took the character in a completely different direction. And then that continued to go a little bit further to the campy. And then we we take a big turn into the quote-unquote grounded Batman in Bale. Mm-hmm. And then you get something that is different, that fits a different universe with Affleck. And then now we're going to Pattinson, which whew, it looks like a, a different Batman again. But how can you have a character that has 70 years of history, has what seven two four six seven different actors playing the role of bruce wayne and batman and then you layer in things like the animated series video games comic books and all this and have a definitive version 
Oh, I know. And the thing is, the definitive version for one person is different than another. Exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. You, you just look at the reaction to Leslie Grace's Batgirl. And it's like, that is a definitive version of Batgirl to a lot of people mm-hmm. and that costume. But then there's other people that are like, well, no, it's not Batgirl. Well, what, what do you want Batgirl to look like? And it's like, oh, you want her to look like the Arkham Night Game version of Batgirl, because that's the only version of the character that you know? Okay, well. Mm-hmm. And then she doesn't look like Yvonne Craig, because that's the version that I grew up with. So, yeah, definitive is in the eye of the beholder, I think, to some extent. 100%. Very, very well put. That It exists here, and elsewhere it's something different. And so I don't like the term definitive. What is the definitive Spider-Man? I don't think there is one. I don't think it exists. No, and you you never know, right? Like, and sometimes you have these projects that completely change the paradigm mm-hmm. because Wonder Woman was not what Wonder Woman is now until Gal Gadot took that role on. Exactly. Or probably, you know, honestly, the best example of a character that was adapted and with a pretty concise amount of history is Thanos, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Because the Thanos that we saw on screen was really different than the Thanos in the comics. However, he worked perfectly for Mm -hmm. the story that they were telling and in the context of a cinematic universe where you have other characters that can kind of carry this emotional loss forward and then uh, work towards having this reunion, right? Like, I don't know. Was anybody watching Infinity War trying to figure out where, like, naked adam warlock was sleeping yeah. in a stone somewhere no i wasn't where's pip yeah. he's an eternal <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's that's an interesting thing you bring up here and it kind of leads us to the last key point is at what point in a universe or in a version does the adaptation itself become a version unto itself like you're talking about thanos there it's a perfect example right where they took some ideas, some concepts, the Infinity Gauntlet being probably the most prominent one, and they used that and connected it to that character. But if you go read, well, if you go read Infinity War, you're going to be in for a big surprise. But if you go read Infinity Gauntlet, which is the story that is extremely loosely adapted into the end of Infinity War and Endgame, you're going to be shocked as to what <laughs> you're going to read because you're, you're not seeing anything that you saw on screen infinity war and Endgame, other than the snap and the concept of the 50 percent, but even that is different right it's mm-hmm. fit for purpose i think the mcu is in a place right now where they have firmly established the universe and inside of that universe the versions of the characters that you're getting are their own versions right we're gonna see she hulk miss marvel we've seen characters like vision and wanda who at times are very different than their comic book origins but there's never any real issues with what they're doing with those characters that I can see at least, you know, they have established their origins in a sense that, that tie a bit to the essence of the character, but they're progressively moving on and away really from what the comic books would tell you to do. And I think it works for that universe the same way it works in a different universe. It's a six one six or the ultimate universe or the MCU. Everything works in unto itself. And, but at what point do we get there? Like, how far do you need to push a character to the point where the GA accepts this as their own? This is the character now. This is the Spider-Man of the moment. I don't know. I think you just bring him to the table and tell your story well. 
and if they accept it then that becomes the de facto version of the character and and you kind of see it like in discussions with the various comic store owners in town like there's a few of those movies that really drive sales of different books and people diving into stuff and trying to just absorb more of the characters and then there's movies that do phenomenally well but people just don't care to explore it anymore they just like that version and they're happy mm -hmm. with it and that's the that's the one that they embrace so yeah i i i don't know man like i, I think you just i think you always bring it to the table with the intent of here's the character and here's why people love them mm -hmm. and without needing to to latch on to all that baggage right like yep. Kind of like they did with Jurassic Park. It's like, here's the idea. Scientists brought dinosaurs back to life. It probably borrows nine pages of the original book. It's but... nothing like it. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of the greatest but... movies of all time. <laughs> exactly, right? And you have, like, how many millions of people that absolutely adore Jurassic Park as a franchise mm -hmm. um, onto itself without needing to take anything out of those books outside of that core concept yeah yeah and the way i look at it too and i think we see this a lot more as as these films over the last decade or so have become such a, a prominent fixture in hollywood and a money-making machine is that we're almost seeing everything go back if we can take this full circle is where the films the mcu in particular influences the source material where yeah. we see versions of the characters that look like tony stark like Robert Downey Jr., where we see the translation of costumes and even concepts into the Marvel 616 that is really trying to bring in that audience that you're speaking about that are going hunting, looking for a version of the character that they're familiar with. And you're sort of seeing that, that influence the other way, the adaptation the other way, which I always found quite interesting, especially on the heels of Avengers was a big one. Guardians of the Galaxy is another great example that – Mm -hmm. the the versions that you see in 2007 and 2008 that influenced James Gunn's run on this are different even than what we got on film but you go to the comic shops in 2014 2015 and even into now into the video game the definitive version if i can use that in air quotes of the guardians that team is the team that you see in the film where you go to the comic books it's very different and the way it was assembled is very different and so that's it's a great example of how you have this influence back to the source material on from the big screen. And so it's it's cool to see that that adaptation concept going full circle on this. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. So, Just make good stuff. People will come. Exactly, right? Right. Capture the essence. Let's uh let's see it there. So let's uh let's call it there for for this week in nerd. Again, another abstract discussion, guys, and you know I personally love having these because it, it really feels like we're, we're just sitting doing the things that we, we normally do. And we hope you guys have enjoyed these, but we will get back to some, uh, some, some more news centric stuff, hopefully here over the next couple of weeks, but a segment we cannot miss out on my dude. And you've done a little teasing here for your weekend nerd. So let's get over to everyone's favorite segment. Our week in nerd. All right, my man, we're here in our Weekend Nerd where we like to talk about what 
we picked up, what plastic has got us running that little fever, what we're reading, what we're watching. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to, well, why don't we do this? I'm going to go first because I had a really small week here. All right. And we'll let, sounds good. We'll let you cap this thing off. So guys, it's, it's been a slow and steady build here into 2022. My Legends game on last week, and this week was quiet, just like the news, man, just like the worlds of nerd. And I picked up two things, two significant things, channeling my inner goddamn Batman this week. I did pick up a $5 little tiny Batman Lego, a Batmobile Lego, I should say, of this new Pattinson Lego Batman. I, uh, I couldn't resist it. I saw it. And I was like, I need this. I need this right now. So I haven't built it yet. And it's tiny. It's just a prelude, a precursor to what will eventually be my my Batman build when I get my hands on the uh I think it's the technic I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with. The larger, nice. larger scale one. I don't think I can go small scale. Taking that scale. big swing. I love it. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. So I picked up that. Nothing, nothing big. And for those of you who have been listening for for a long time, you know I'm a I'm a I'm a Pez collector. Star Wars and Marvel Pez Collector. And it's usually around this time of year where we start to see a lot of the new Pez's filtering out. And this year, there's a lot of replicas, but there's a brand new, a lot of repeats, I should say. There's a brand new Hulk that I got my hands on, which I was quite excited about. Bruce Banner there for my man, Carlos. And uh, I'm trying to get my eyes on some of these Eternal Pez. So really small week that's in the plastic side of things, but it was capped off with my first purchase of a Blu-ray in a long time i spent the last two weekends actually taking every single dvd and blu-ray that i own and filing it into those binder things and getting rid of the hundreds of cases i have because they're just taking up too much space i moved into this house five years ago and i had two bins of blu-rays and dvds the first time i opened them was last weekend when i started filtering the into these these uh, what are they called the cd binders and so i said to myself because i haven't opened this case in five years probably don't need these anymore and so for a little space and economy there i did all that i offered some of the stuff up to sanjay but then what did i do i turned around and walked into walmart and bought ghostbusters afterlife on blu-ray <laughs> you gotta i couldn't resist that one came with a digital copy of course which will probably get the most play out of it but i i wanted a steelbook it didn't come and you can go on our instagram actually at the nerd rm and see sunjay he picked up the three movie and i think digital copy it comes with for uh answer the call but the three movie trilogy trap box ghost trap box that came out and it's got a light and all this kind of cool stuff in it so he grabbed that i didn't want to spend 100 bucks on <laughs> on the three movies i was much much happier to spend the 20 or so on ghostbusters afterlife but i couldn't i couldn't go without getting that film i didn't want to pay 30 bucks for just a pure digital copy it just didn't feel right so i did pick up ghostbusters afterlife and i'm excited this weekend didn't get the chance to watch it but this weekend my wife and i are gonna watch it she has not seen it so um that, that was my week man slow and steady but uh, some nice little pieces i will say excellent man no that's awesome that's awesome and that, that's hilarious that you I, I remember you chronicling the great purge and oh yeah. So sending you pictures. Sanjay, do you want this? Do you want this? Sanjay, do you want this? <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, let's get this out of here. But anyways, man, you've been teasing a little something. 
for for a minute or two here. You threw something up on Twitter there before the record. So let's hear it, man. I'm I'm excited. I know you've got a little uh, something planned for me to send so I can have a, a live reaction as to what you picked up here. So let's do it. Yeah. So man, this this started percolating th- since September. And up until this week, all hope was lost on this. So it uh, it's a bit of a story. So I'll take uh, I'll take the listeners on a journey. So back in September, kind of at the height of one of the COVID waves or whatever, they uh, decided to have the Calgary Expo here, and uh, it was a pretty limited affair. But uh, one of the artists that they had coming in was Jason Fabok, and. In my mind, I think he's one of this generation's greatest DC artists and one of the most iconic Batman artists that has ever put pen to paper with my time with the character. But he was coming, and it was like a Sunday morning, and I just happened to catch a tweet where he said, yeah, I'm coming to the expo. I'm going to open up, like, I think it was three commission spots, uh, send an email to to my handler with... Uh, comic arts fans and see what happens kind of thing right so I kind of float this by my wife and she's like well you got to because she's like you don't really talk about any artists and he's kind of your guy and I was like ah nah it's like a lot of money for a picture and and then I kind of started thinking and like one of the coolest things last year year before time is a flat circle but with the podcast when we all read three jokers together Mm -hmm. and that is like an iconic legendary book. And that's of course his work. And I was like, ah, you know what? Like he is my favorite. This is. And like one of my favorite memories in reading comics, I'll throw my name in the hat. There's no way that I will get one of the spots because he's going to be the most popular name on the bill for, uh, for my estimation. So throw my name in the hat, I leave, I go grocery shopping, and as I'm picking up milk and eggs, I get the email from the gal saying, like, hey, you've been picked. Um, What do you want him to do? And so it's kind of, I was like, well, it's got to be Batman, as cliched as that is, and you look at his commissions, and it's just kind of filled with Batmans, but because he draws one of the best Batmans going, I, I had to pick that. But I was like, oh, I'll do a bit of a spin on it. And I know he's a huge fan of the movie. So I was like, I want you to do me Batman, but do me Michael Keaton Batman. Because from what I've seen, you've never done him as a commission. And I think you could do something pretty cool with it, given your love of the character. So Expo Day comes. I'm jacked. I got like my cash in hand, ready to pay him. And he's not able to make it because of circumstances back home. So like shoot and so handler contacts me he says yeah uh don't worry he's gonna do your piece uh because he never opens up his commissions a and b he primarily draws digitally so he's put pen to paper type of thing so might as well make good on this deal so i was like okay she's like well i'm traveling to toronto for the fan expo he'll be there and he lives there. So I'll pick it up for you and I'll get it into your hands. Um, when I get back home. So I'm like, okay, cool. And so I weekend at Toronto expo. She emails me back. Yeah. If you're still good to go, your name is still number one on the list. Send me the money via PayPal and we'll get the commission done. And so 
week before I set my money off. I was like, yeah, I'm good to go. Still want the Keaton Batman and uh, Toronto Fan Expo rolls around. She's like, I can't go down there, but he sent me the picture of what he's done for you. So, Tim, if you want to grab your phone there. <laughs> All right, here it is. Yeah, yeah. She sends me a picture, and he does up this just gorgeous Michael Keaton Batman picture. And you, like, yeah, the, the 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 line work is unreal in it. It's just wow. this masterfully done picture of Keaton that you could tell is from like a like a promotional still uh, that he's converted into his art, and just like the time and effort that you can see is done in that. Jeez, man, um, this is unreal. Yeah, so she sends me that, and she's like, "But," and like this goes to show that I my thought paid off. He had such a good time doing that and was so into doing this Michael Keaton Batman for you that he actually came up with two and you can pick between the two which one you want. So I just sent you the second one now. And um, Get she sends out me... of here. <laughs> <laughs> she sends me the second image and she's like, just pick whichever one you want. He'll sell the other one at the Toronto Expo. But the second one she sends, he basically did me up a cover for Batman or for three jokers in that style for the extreme close up. It's stands shoulder to shoulder with all the jokers and all the, the Batman red hood and Batgirl that he did. But instead of those characters, it is Michael Keaton's Batman. Dude. So, yeah. So I, I kind of tabled it to the family and it was like a big split I threw it at Troy and I was like, man, what do you think? And man, that guy made it worse than ever because he's like flip flopping back and forth. I'm driving. <laughs> I'm getting DMs from him. He's like, no, you know what? I've gone back and I've looked. And but it's like that second one with that three Joker style picture that he did up. It was like, man, this there's something just special about this because it is clearly and unequivocally Michael Keaton's Batman. But it is also a thousand percent Faye box style. So I was like, this is the one that I want, please. And thank you. You got my money. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to be going to New York, uh, like toy fair or whatever it is that shortly after that, I'll pick it up from our guys there and, uh, we'll get it into your hands. So another wave of restrictions and lockdowns and border closings happens. <laughs> she's not able to get down there. And so she's like, We'll connect, but it's yours. It's been paid for. Your name is on it type of thing. And so this started in September. It's now December. And I finally say, you know what? I don't want to really wait anymore. And I'm kind of heading to that one month away from my PayPal coverage being lapsed. Why don't you just mail it to me? So she gets them to mail it to me and it gets lost in the mail. No. And nobody knows where it is. I I get the notification that a label's been made and the tracking information on it doesn't change. Oh. Nobody can find it. They don't quite know who the carrier is because there was funky stuff going on with the carriers down in the States. And uh yeah. When all hope was lost, this was what day is it say? Tuesday? Yeah, like Thursday of last week. My wife's like, there's a big flat thing that's been delivered to the house. Do you have any idea what that is? 
I was like, oh, shoot. So I go to the front door and like no word of exaggeration. And like listeners, I, I will post it on our Instagram there so you can see it. And this is why when you see it, like I was like, I, I got emotional that this thing actually showed up because it is so damn glorious. dude. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it it's a pretty unreal commission piece, like to the point that like, um, they told me that I had first priority for his next commissions. And I was like, you know what? I don't even want another one because there'll never be one as good as the one that he made for me. So I sent you a picture of the final version of it. So he actually ended up coloring the logo in and stuff oh, nice. in between now and the end. But Here yeah, that's that's what showed up at my door. Oh, dude. I love yeah. the yellow. Yeah. Oh, man. And it's like, it's one of those where... Like I said, they offered to give me the first spot next bat up, and I was just like, no, because it would never ever match that, no matter what. It's not gonna live up, man. This is uh, what a piece. You're gonna get it all framed up. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the reason it's still in that shipping thing is because it, it's got to get the proper frame up job and yeah, nice mat and pay for that and, and hell whatnot, yeah, so. dude. What a story, man. I can't I can't wait for people to see this. Have an eyes on this thing. You made the right choice, in my opinion. On, yeah. On, on your editor, too. Like, they're both gorgeous. But there's something just about the lines in the second one. And you're lo- you're looking at a Keaton that we're going to see here, man. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the other thing. That, like, you know, it kind of got me hyped, right? Because I was just like, shoot. That's, uh, that's the dude. And, like that he did too, like as much as it sucked having to make a decision, like the Sophie's choice between like these two gorgeous pictures. Um, it, it, there was just something about like the fact that he did too spoke to his passion for that version of the character, right? This is like same age as us type of thing. Or so you got to know that that was the go-to Batman buying those dark Knight collection toys and whatnot. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was a cool, it was cool that that came, man. Just God's good graces that it showed up at my door that day, and that's so awesome, man. Like, ah, just being in that position where it's just gone, and you're like, well, what do I do? And yeah, for it to show up months later, <laughs> yeah, like we were we were well into February by the time it showed up, and it was shipped in December, and and nobody had any idea, any idea, but oh man. What a story. I love it. I love it. I can't wait for more people to see that and for that to go up. And it's, it's, I think it's fitting that it showed up in 2022. You know, the ah, year of the renaissance of Keaton and this bat, the year of the bat, if you will. Like, uh, to me, the, the stars just align there so perfectly. Like, it's yeah. one of a, a one of a kind Keaton piece. You get it in the year that Keaton was returning to the Cape and Cal. Amazing, man. You know what? That makes it all the better. That makes it all the better. <sighs> man, this I way. love it. Oh, yeah, all made... my stress, all my tears. That just yeah. just made made my week seeing that, man. Oh, <laughs> I'm even more excited for the Flash now that you got a piece like that in your possession. <laughs> Thanks, man. So good. And just wait, just wait. You can set that up next to your McFarlane when it comes. <laughs> your yeah. Hot toy when it comes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You know that that influx is coming, and there's no way that that guy only has one look in that movie. Oh, so. yeah, guaranteed. <laughs> well, guys, there it is. Another wonderful weekend, nerd. Another 
another another week of of awesome collectibles and and discussion here carlos it's it's as always it's been a pleasure talking about this stuff and if you guys would like to be more involved in these conversations you can always email us at nerdum at gmail.com you can find everything we do over the nerdroom.net the hunt is real and it doesn't get any more real than this week you can find that over on instagram you can see this picture carlos is going to throw it up there you can see some of the collection stuff that myself and ian have been tossing up there and then you can also walk over to our YouTube channel where Carlos has become the main creator over these last couple of weeks with all the influx of McFarlane Batman merchandise. <laughs> and you can check out not only his review of the three main figures that have arrived, but also the Bat Cycle from that McFarlane, which is substantially cheaper than any Black Series on planet Earth right now. <laughs> <laughs> So go over there and check that out and give us a subscribe to the YouTube channel. Toys and room tours and all that is up over there. So it's a nice supplemental content to everything that we discuss here each and every week in the Nerd Room. And Twitter, guys, that's where you can find us every single week, having conversations, throwing ideas, concepts, images up there. So you can find our handles at the end of the episode or you can use the hashtag WeTheNerd. And so Carlos, my man, after that, just amazing end to the podcast i guess we got to uh we got to put a pin in itself post super bowl so fingers crossed next week we've got a jurassic world dominion if super bowls this weekend i have no idea i'm not a football guy black adam as well maybe Ooh, black oh i would like that okay bring it on bring on the trailers guys and so maybe until then for the nerd room i'm tim and i'm batman man yeah you are batman (laughs) every day of the week (laughs) And uh, and thank you so much for entering the Nerd Room. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim, Troy, Sanjay, and Carlos on Twitter at TheNerdRM, TroyTheBoy87, Sanjabi, and CDN Caped Crusade R. For more content from the Nerd Room, check out TheNerdRoom.net. And don't forget to subscribe to the Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you plug in. Use the hashtag WeTheNerd to keep up with the latest from the Nerd Room on Instagram and Twitter.